I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity or the privilege to teach a teenager how to drive a car, but I got to do it twice. I have two daughters, Rachel and Lauren, and one of the most stressful times of my parenthood was actually teaching them to drive a car. We started out uh, with Rachel. Rachel is our oldest, and we, uh, I took her out to teach her how to drive. And one of our first lessons, not, not only to drive, but you also learn how to change a tire on a car. And the other thing is how to pump gas. That was a lesson as well. So we drove down to the local gas station from our house, and I had her pull up to the pump, which is a challenge all in, herself, all in itself. If you're a new driver trying to get your car lined up to the gas pump, and then we got all lined up already, and I said, are you good? She said, yeah, I'm good, Dad. I'm like, actually, you're not. The gas cap's on the other side. We got to turn around, go the other side. So we reset everything up, and then finally we get it all lined up, and I said, and she, and she looks at me. She's like, Dad, I've seen you do this a thousand times. I got this, right? And so she jumps out of the car. I hand her the credit card. She goes over to the pump, works the pump and everything, gets the gas cap off, and she's standing at a particular pump uh, that not not uh, this happens sometimes where you have actually two gas pump handles one's a yellow one or a white one or a black one and the one's a green one and uh, so she's got these two options here and she immediately figures hey green good that's the one we want so she grabs a green handle pump which is the diesel fuel for our gasoline car and I immediately jump out of the car and said no wait don't do that and she's like what what am I doing wrong he's like that's diesel fuel we don't want to put diesel in our fuel tank. That will ruin the engine. That will ruin our car. And so we had this whole lesson on which is the difference. And we talked about different octanes and all those things. And we're pretty much an 87 octane family because when you have teenagers driving cars, you want the cheapest gas to put in there. And so we did that. I also kind of remember, uh, some of you may remember the the gas prices, uh, the gas lines in the 1970s. I grew up waiting in line for 75 cent gas if you can imagine that. But I remember that in the 70s and just waiting in line. And so we've got a very frugal spirit when it comes to putting gas in our car. So we get that lesson done. But it matters, right, what you put in your tank. You, you want to make sure that what you put in your tank, you're going to run well on, that your fuel is going to sustain you, so that fuel is going to drive that car, right, in a healthy way. I think about this, too. For us as humans, there are different things that drive us, that fuel us, that give us passion and energy, right? And we all have different motives, and we're driven by different feelings and things. Sometimes we're driven by achievement or success. Sometimes we're driven by fear, security, or lack of security. Sometimes we're, we're, we're driven and fueled by love, and sometimes we're driven and fueled by anger. And we have all these different motives and fuels, emotional fuels, that we run off of in our life. It's also possible that you and I become frustrated too. Have you noticed how frustrated we become when other people aren't as passionate about things as we are and we think there's something wrong with them when really it's just about our passion and what God's calling us or what's fueling us, whether it be from God or not from God, right? But expecting someone else's passion to be our passion is an unrealistic expectation. In fact, that's part of the reason I think God made all of us different, right? Different passions, different gifts, different abilities, different opportunities, because God is at work in all of us, and we need each other in community. And so we look at this passage today, and one of the things we want to look at is what's driving Jesus this week, this holy week that we heard read about this morning? What's going on inside of Jesus? What's fueling him? What's motivating him to go from Jericho to Jerusalem. That's a 20-mile trek. It 
actually, he starts out in Jericho where he met a man named Zacchaeus, and he starts his journey to Jerusalem there in Jericho. And as he, it's 20 miles, and as he comes up to Jerusalem, he's about now two miles away from Jerusalem where he stops at Bethpage and Bethany, and he asks for a colt. And he begins to ride that colt into Jerusalem. Now, the colt was symbolic of a king coming in peace. He was not coming as a military conqueror. He was not coming by force. He was coming humble. He was coming with peace. He was coming with a servant's heart, right? And so what the people do is they take their cloaks off, right? And they begin to lay them down in the road. We actually don't find palm branches in Luke's passage. We find that in another gospel. And we see these cloaks being laid. They're basically rolling out the red carpet for Jesus, right? They're saying, we welcome you as our king, our peace-filled, peace-loving king. In fact, they actually say when they praise him in Luke chapter 19, verse 38, he says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There, there's this idea that Jesus is riding in a peaceful manner. His outward intentional act is actually very public. Notice He's also an outlaw king, right? They wanted to arrest him. His, they wanted to find a way to, to arrest him and imprison him. And, but here he is riding in full view of everybody, publicly riding into Jerusalem, and where it, previously he had been in hiding. And so he's now making a public proclamation that he is coming as a peaceful king. And then even as he ride, comes up over the Mount of Olives, and when you come up over that rise in the hills, you actually come up over Mount, the Mount of Olives, and you can see the whole city of Jerusalem stretched out before you. And that's the view that Jesus has of the whole city of Jerusalem. And as he's coming down and descending towards Jerusalem on the colt, he begins to weep, and he begins to lament. He begins to weep tears over the city. And he says this, he says this, he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would, what, bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus longs to bring peace to the city. And then he goes on to predict the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans. The Romans were the ones that were occupying the city and occupying the whole area and they were under Roman control, and ultimately in 70 AD, the Roman army destroys the city of Jerusalem, just as Jesus predicted, and as he's being prophetic here. But again, notice that in both these actions of riding the colt and actually weeping and lamenting over the city, his desire is to bring peace, right? Jesus brings peace, wants to bring peace to the city. I think Jesus wants to bring peace to our city as well today or many cities around our nation today. Think about how much we're seeing a lack of peace, how we long for peace when there are riots in our streets, when we see since last spring a rise in hate crimes against our Asian brothers and sisters, as we see shootings in Atlanta and Boulder, and may, we may even see more in the future, unfortunately. It's a long, it reminds us that we long for peace. How often when these things happen in our cities do we sit back and go, oh, what is going on, God? Where is your peace? Jesus says, if you knew the one who would bring you peace, him, Jesus brings peace. If we want peace, we want to bring Jesus with us and be a part of us and what's happening in our cities, in our communities, in our own individual lives. Because Jesus is being motivated to bring peace, right? Maybe that's what's fueling Jesus 
we can't really make that assumption, can we? Because the very next thing is when he gets to Jerusalem, this peace-loving king goes into the temple, and the next thing he goes, gets off his colt, and now he's flipping tables in the temple, right? Wait a second, you just said Jesus wanted to bring peace, and now we find Jesus in the temple flipping tables over and driving out those selling, and the, also we know from the other gospels, the, the money changers in the temple. So this doesn't look very peaceful, does it? <laughs> This doesn't look like someone bringing peace. This looks like someone driving out and bringing justice, right? And really what Jesus is addressing is a system of greed that was actually happening, happening in the temple system, run, by the way, by the high priest, Annas. Notice that if you keep reading in the Gospels, you'll find that the first place after Jesus is arrested, they take him is to the high priest that evening to stand judgment before the high priest. Why? Because he was messing with the temple system of greed. What was going on there was, well, a couple things were happening. One, when a person, a, he, when someone went to the temple to worship at Passover, that was the annual time to pay the annual tax, temple tax. Every male Hebrew had to pay a temple tax of half a shekel, which was a, about two days wages in that time. So think about what, do you, what would you make in two days right now? That would be your temple tax as you went to the temple. Now, the issue was that when you went to the temple, oftentimes you were carrying coins, maybe from the Romans or from the Egyptians or from the Greeks. And so your, your coinage or the coins you brought with you to the temple were not in shekels. And this temple tax was to be paid in the Hebrew shekel, a half shekel. So you'd bring your other coins, let's say you bring your Roman coins with you to the temple, and now you have to exchange them for shekels. So then there would be a fee that you would be charged for exchanging your Roman coin for Hebrew shekels. Now, if you needed change back, you know, because how often would a person have exact Roman coinage to equal half a shekel or Greek coinage or Egyptian coinage, right? So if you wanted change back, then there was another fee charged you to get your change back. And sometimes you had to make a decision, well, is it worth it actually to pay the fee to get my change? If the fee was greater than the change I get back, it was like, hey, keep the change. So what's happening here is there's a system in place where the money changers were making money, and they passed that money on to the priest and to the high priest. Everybody got a cut. And so there's a system of greed that's at work in the temple. The other thing that's happening here is the temple sacrificial system uh, that people could buy sacrifices and they could go in the marketplace and they could buy, for example, a pigeon or a dove at market price and that was acceptable market rate. But if they went into the temple, see, when they went to sacrifice at the temple, they would have to have those sacrifices approved by the priest. And so you didn't know whether or not it was going to be accepted by the priest when you got there. But thanks to the Annas and the high priesthood and the priest system there in the temple, you could get a pre-blessed offering. You could get a pre-certified sacrifice in the temple itself that was already approved by the priests themselves. And so that way you didn't have to worry about it. The problem was is that the rate that you would pay for that sacrifice was 15 times higher than what you pay outside the temple. You know how you go to the ball game? And you get a hot dog and you go, wow, these prices are outrageous. Or you go to the movies and you pay more for popcorn and you go, wow, these are outrageous prices. They were paying 15 times the amount they would have normally. The problem, and the problem with Jesus 
problem for Jesus is this. This took advantage of the poor most of all. You know, when I go to the movies or you go to the ball game, you and I can afford to pay the increase in prices, and it's part of our entertainment. But what Jesus is saying is that you're taking advantage of the poor and you're using the house of God to do it. And what he was addressing was a system of greed that was happening in the very house of God. And he was saying, we need to change the system of greed and get it back to a system of prayer, a house of prayer. And so what we see is this now peace-filled, Jesus peace-filled, peace-loving, peace-riding king now turning tables, seeking justice in the temple system. And Jesus not only brings peace, but Jesus seeks justice, right? And so these two things are at work in Jesus. And so is justice what is driving Jesus? Is, is now justice what is fueling him and motivating him as he takes this Holy Week journey? Well, I'm not sure it's either one, actually. And just when you got Jesus figured out, oh yeah, see, Jesus is for peace or Jesus is for justice. And even as our world argues over peace or justice or how they go together or don't go together, there's something else maybe fueling Jesus. Maybe there's something else motivating him that really the justice and the peace are simply steps towards something greater. In fact, if we recall, remember Jesus starts out in Jericho with a man in a tree. But where he's headed is not simply a city, but he also is headed to another tree, and he'll hang on it. It's called the cross. And his whole mission, and he said this, that his mission was not peace, was not justice, although he brings those things with him along the way. The ultimate goal and the ultimate focus of Jesus' mission is the cross. These are intentional acts these are intentional steps in his public journey. He's making public intentional acts that will end result will be his hanging on a tree called the cross. What's motivating Jesus to go there? Maybe these are simply steps on the journey to something greater. I think we actually have to go back to Jericho. Let's go back to Jericho. What happens in Jericho? Maybe... We didn't read that today, but we know, maybe even from Sunday school, about Zacchaeus, right? We have a little song that we sing. And we, we know that song, we learned that Zacchaeus was in a tree in Jericho, and he wanted to see Jesus. And Jesus, as he's walking by, surrounded by the crowds, he looks up in the tree at Zacchaeus, and he says, I'm coming to your house for dinner. Jesus just invites him over for dinner, himself over for dinner. Now, the thing about Zacchaeus was, he was a tax collector. He was more despised than the money changers in the temple. He was complicit in the whole Roman system of greed and all the greed that was going on. He was a part of that, and people despised him for that. He was a part of the Roman occupation. They couldn't understand, and mostly the crowd would have been aghast by the idea that Jesus would go have a meal and have a dinner with a tax collector. Why would Jesus do that? What's fueling him? What's motivating him to have dinner with someone that was despised among the people? Well, love, maybe. Not maybe, it was love. Jesus loved Zacchaeus and accepted Zacchaeus right where he was in the tree. <laughs> he said, come down. 
I'm going to your house today. Notice what happens after that. It's at this point in the story that Zacchaeus repents of his greed. He rejects the system of greed that he was caught up in, and he gets out of it. And he repents of his own greed, greed desire. You know, money is the root of all kinds of evil, it says in the Bible. And he was caught up. Notice that what happens when he encounters the love and acceptance and belonging of Jesus, that that's when repentance comes, not before. What's fueling Jesus is a holy love, what John Wesley called a holy love. John Wesley referred to this as a way that what was fueling Jesus, what is motivating Jesus' peace and what's motivating his justice, what's behind it all is this holy love that is driving him. The real fuel in Jesus' tank is holy love, not just these other things. This is one definition of holy love I want to share with you from Kenneth Collins. He said, it is a love marked by purity and simplicity of holiness. At Calvary, nails could not destroy such holy love. Taunting could not weaken it. Hatred could not overcome it, right? Holy love was taking each step in the journey to the cross. It was holy love that was riding a cult into the city of Jerusalem. It was holy love that was lamenting over the city. It was holy love that was flipping tables in the temple. It was holy love that spent every day that week teaching in the temples. And it was holy love that went, sent him and kept him on the cross. That's holy love. And it's the holy love that God wants to work in us and through us as well. We at some point have to question our own motives and question our own passions and say, is it really love that's driving me? Is it really holy love that is leading me in whatever actions, intentional acts I'm engaged in? Because that's what's driving Jesus. Notice, too, that holy love is what the starting point, right? And Jesus brings peace and brings justice and cleanses us when we accept that holy love as well. I've been reflecting a little bit on being a pastor in recent times, and I was reflecting back, uh, how did I get into this whole thing, right, <laughs> being a pastor? But actually reflecting back to, how did I get into the church? How did I get into the faith community? You see, when I was a teenager, I rejected God. I had rejected God, and I said, I didn't want anything to do with God, and I rejected the church and everything it stood for at that point in time. And at that time, though, someone came alongside, a pastor came and said, hey, Matt, why don't you come to our youth group? Invited me in, right? just like Jesus invited Zacchaeus to dinner. A pastor invited me to their youth group. And so I came and I met some youth leaders, and those youth leaders were very accepting of me, and they helped me to feel like I belonged to the group, and they engaged with me, and they were interested in what I was doing. And even though I was fully against God or rejecting God at that point, they accepted me first, right? They loved me first. And as I got a part of that youth group, I then built community. I made friendships with some people that, from school that I didn't even like. And all of a sudden, now I'm friends with the people I didn't like. And you think about this, right? What was happening? I hadn't repented. I hadn't turned my life over to God. But what was happening first is I was loved 
first. I was belonged. I was accepted first. And then I repented. And then I gave my life to God. And then I experienced salvation just like Zacchaeus. You know, God loves first. Repentance doesn't come because it's demanded. Change doesn't come because we want to fix people or change people. It comes when we love people and are loved. That's when change comes. And Jesus knew that. And so it was this holy love that was being poured out in Jesus, through Jesus, that was changing all of us in the whole world. And it's that holy love that if we invite and allow into our lives through Jesus, if we accept that invitation, that loving acceptance and invitation from Jesus, guess what happens to us? Then we may just repent. We may just want to change. We may just want to be the people that God called us to be. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. Jesus didn't wait for us to repent. Jesus didn't wait for us to get our act together, to get it all fixed up or cleaned up. Jesus accepted us where we were and loved us where we were, and in that comes change. That's holy love that comes to us and cleanses us. And maybe there's even some tables that need to be turned over in our lives as well, but that's a holy love that comes to us. And if you've never experienced that holy love in your life, I didn't invite you to accept the invitation from Jesus to be with you. Jesus wants to come into your life. Jesus would invite himself to dinner at your house if he were here because he loves you. And he too wants you to know that you belong and are accepted in the people and in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together.